Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business, and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com. Hello and welcome to the RA Edge podcast. This is Mark Bruno, Managing Director of the Wealth Management Group here at Informa Connect. And we are very excited to have our guest here today, Jeff Deco, the CEO of the Wealth Enhancement Group, one of the most active acquirers, one of the smartest people in the RA space, and certainly one of the best perspectives on mergers, acquisitions, and valuations in the RA industry. So Jeff, thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. I, I, that's a very kind introduction. I, I... I don't know about the smartest. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll I'll see. Try. I'll, try. We'll, I'll see if I can deliver on that. <laughs> we'll take you to task here today. That's for sure. So before we get going, like I mentioned, you've been one of the most active companies in the space. There's no question. Um, I've followed your progression over the last few years from a distance. Um, heard you speak on a number of industry panels. And certainly, you know, we've reported on a lot of the deals that Wealth Enhancement Group has been involved in over the last several years. Before we jump into what's driving some of your strategy, obviously your interest in the space and what's driving growth in the RAA industry in general, while people are familiar with you, would you just give us a brief history of Wealth Enhancement Group and also a little bit of context on you know, when you joined and the trajectory since? Yeah, for sure. So the firm was started in 1996 by uh, four, four founders, and, and they're really three advisors and, and one executive that came together out of the broker-dealer space. And they had a really basic fundamental vision, which was how do they bring wealth management sort of services to more of the affluent and mass affluent? One of the founders, a guy named Dave Hess, came out of um, the trust world, uh, dealing with very high net worth clients. But he really looked and said, you know, we're not we're not delivering. And you got to remember, this is 1996. We're not delivering true wealth management to kind of the the mass affluent to affluent, and you know, kind of think half million up to 10 million at the time. And how can we do that? <clears throat> and from that 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 desired objective, they really were fairly thoughtful about building an organization that was very team centric. So I think if you go back to 96, independent advisors, especially in the RA space, they kind of did it all, right? They found the client, they did the planning work, they did the investment, you know, all that stuff. And they, from the very beginning, thought about really division of labor and building out a team of people and, and pushing, you know, pushing tasks that advisors might do to younger or developing talent so they could get reps, right? So, so they could have that kind of chance to get practice and, and learn how to do those types of things. And they did that really aggressively in a team format. And they combined that with another founder, a guy named Bruce Helmer. Um, and Bruce was a, was a great radio guy. And, and he could talk for an hour about, you know, he talked about financial planning on a radio show and, and have huge listenership and made it interesting and really invited people into wealth management, right? Sometimes our space can be a little, little intimidating, right, to, to the clients. And he was very, he was just amazing and inviting. He still does it to this day, actually. And so they combined that sort of attraction, bringing people in with a very thoughtful team approach and defined way to service those clients. So you, had, you had to be more efficient, right, than what was going on. And, and then they built the foundation of the company that really, 
you know, last till today. I, I came in 2002. They were about 600 million um, when I joined them. They, they started really with almost no assets. And I just, I admired the, I admired their approach. I admired how they used marketing, very aggressive marketing in terms of pushing out this idea that planning is for you as an individual. And, and they were, the, at the time, they were the only ones speaking to those people, right? I mean, you know, typically the, the wirehouse world was looking for five or 10 million and up. And, sure. you know, they were trying to speak to kind of that one to five-ish and one to 10-ish uh, range. And, and people really, it was what they were looking for. And, and from that, they, they really grew organically. I, I joined in 2002. My, my background, I was a consumer marketer. Before that, I started at General Mills, marketing Wheaties and Cheerios and things like that. And, and I went to another company and grew that and sold it to Procter & Gamble um, shortly before I came here. And I was attracted to them because of this, this commitment to, to providing wealth management services really more holistic approach. I was attracted because they had this marketing, had tremendous organic growth at the time, and they really had this great culture of team. And, you know, so I'd love to say, oh, I came in and I transformed this company. I mean, I, I basically came in as a professional manager who had a strong nice. marketing background and just really kind of piled on to do the things they were already doing. And, and we grew from there. Appreciate that. And at some point, we'll have to get into what similarities there are between Cheerios and wealth management, if there are any at all. Um, but you know, I, I can certainly appreciate the perspective of coming in and being a professional manager. I mean, so many of our listeners um, are running businesses that are now the size that Wealth Enhancement Group was when you first came in, right? And they have to think about themselves as, you know, one hat on, I'm a financial advisor, another hat, I'm a professional manager, particularly if I want to go to a billion, two billion in assets under management. So really looking forward to getting you know, a little bit more perspective from you here during the interview today. I think you gave a history of Wealth Enhancement Group, but you know, I'd like to bring it into the present day a little bit. Um, and looking at you know, M&A activity over the last several years, we were talking before, you know, I think the last time we ran into each other was when I was with Echelon Partners and it was in the middle of this RAA M&A frenzy. And there are so many different types of buyers today, right, compared to five, 10 years ago. What specific problem does the Wealth Enhancement Group solve for the companies that you're acquiring or looking to acquire? Yeah. So, well, I think... So I, I, I'll sort of maybe talk about how we segment the different types of buyers and then <clears throat> that's reflective of the type, you know, the type of people that, you know, we're looking for and the type of problems that we're trying to solve. So we think about there's really three types of buyers. And I think, you know, the, the great thing for RAs today, if they're, if they're thinking about selling, is there's more choices than ever. And I think there's more clarity. I mean, if you go back 10 years ago in terms of the firms that we're acquiring, it wasn't quite clear, partly because we were all trying to figure out what what, what was our unique proposition, what what were we providing. There's some of that. I think people were new to it and and um, you know trying to figure out how to articulate it. And then there just wasn't that many people that were that were doing the acquisitions at, at that point. I think the the key you know in terms of how we think about it is we think there's really three types. There's there's firms out there that are really providing um, really just a financial partnership with with an advisor, and you know that that that's attractive to people who have their business, they're running it and they just want to keep running it. Right. But they, but they want to sort of take some, they, you know, it gives them an opportunity to de-risk. They now have a partner in those decisions uh, and they, but they can kind of continue to go forward, uh, you know, as is for the most part, there's obviously in doing that, they have to give certain rights to that, that investor. Oftentimes it has to do with sale of the company and things like that. So, um, you know, I have to be thoughtful as you do that. I think there's another kind that where it's very, you know, we consider uh, so we consider that financial, essentially a financial partner. Uh, the other side, we we see there's really kind of what we call distribution models, where it's very tightly defined centrally, and you follow a playbook, 
right? And and that's all the way from A to Z, you're following that playbook and and it's very tight. And, and that has great operational efficiency. Um, I would tell you that we we call our, our approach and we see other firms are like, this is more of a partnership model. We believe that there's a lot of synergies that are available today that scale started. And we think scale started to matter around 2010 in this space. Prior to that, I'm not sure scale mm-hmm. mattered that much. And in doing that, a partnership model, we really embrace the idea that these RAs are incredibly talented entrepreneurs, and we want to preserve that entrepreneurial energy in coming over. But we also know that what's getting in the way of these entrepreneurs is the sort of overhead administration and managing. I mean, when they when they got in this business, it was, hey, find clients, take great care of clients, right? That was that was kind of the key, key objectives. Well, now it's manage a team of people, deal with the landlord, have financial accounting working through payroll, et cetera. And, and so... Our goal is to find those people who are still energized around entrepreneurial growth and organic growth towards delivering to their clients. And then we take off from a platform and scale perspective, those things that weren't, weren't the reasons why they got in the business. Um, we also have a rev, revenue share model, right? So they still have that entrepreneurial sort of desire to grow. It's not salary and bonus model. And, and some do that typically more in the distribution model. It's a salary and bonus model um, within that. And so, you know, that's fine. That works for that. But in our model, we still want we, we want that entrepreneurial energy there and we want it to be rewarded and we want that independence. And we think that's really critical for our ability um, to continue to grow as an organization uh, within it. And I think against all of these firms that I described or types of firms, look, we're, we're all relatively lower maturity levels than when you think about the banking space, right? JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley. And so we all have to stay really open minded this idea that maybe we don't have it all figured out, right? right? You know, just for a moment, like, I don't think I'm the smartest guy around, right? I, I actually think instead, like these great entrepreneurs, we partner with them. I, we learn something from every one of them. And we are still at, a, at an early enough stage in this consolidation, the RA space that, you know, there are great ideas and you have to say, okay, let's be open and thinking about how we take that entrepreneurial energy. We preserve that, but, oh, wow, there was something they were delivering to clients in a unique way. Let's Let's figure out how to you know, implement that in a more broad way across the organization. I think that's it's very important in terms of where we are as, a, as an industry to have that mindset. And when you're looking at acquiring a firm, what are some of the characteristics of an ideal firm for you? And I, I'll, I'll just sort of qualify that by saying we so often look at a minimum asset level, right? Um, you know, revenue, EBITDA, um, all that being equal, right? we know you want to buy high quality firms, right? But what are some, maybe some qualitative characteristics or some areas yeah. of focus that are critical for them to be a good fit with wealth? Yeah. Yeah. Well, look for us, we've always uh, looked at net flows. <clears throat> net flows is a critical number for us, right? Because, you know, as a firm, you know, we, we typically over the last five years, we've averaged North of eight, 8% net flows, right. Or on a on true organic growth, right. You know, deposits, you know, less withdrawals and take market out. We think that's critical to, to what we're looking for. We, we, I'm not, <clears throat> I, I was recently at a major event or whatever presenting and, you know, I, I started off in the presentation. I said, you know, mergers and, you know, M&A is a really terrible way to build a business. Right. It's just and it just is. I mean, it's it's a very difficult way to build the business. You want to you know, if, if I could if I could grow fast enough organically, I, I would. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is there are there are macro factors that are causing consolidation in this space. And if I ignore that, then I'm just going to get run over. I mean, I can't there's nothing I can do to control those macro factors. And that and that really, you know, if you want to stay relevant um, and, and have the advantage of scale, you have to you have to get in the M&A side. 
from our perspective is we think this M&A activity, I mean, eventually all consolidating industries are consolidated. Right. <laughs> I mean, essentially, they, they eventually that merry-go-round uh, ceases. And, and when that happens, it's sort of a little bit like when the tide goes out, you know, who's wearing shorts, right? Question is, you know, do you have a true organic growth engine inside that, that business that can continue to grow? And so, you know, I think that as you, as you look at the backdrop of firms and what drives, we want to make sure that the firm that's coming to join us has, they, they lean into organic growth. Everybody says they want to grow. The question is, how many people really do the hard work of growth? I mean, it's hard taking on, just taking on a new client, right? I mean, getting, getting to really know them, to do that, that sort of found, foundational planning work. Right. It's it's a it's hard. Right. That you're not even talking about trying to find the client. Right. Mm -hmm. So we want to we definitely look for that. Um, the other thing we look for is essentially it's important for us to create culture. And I think everyone talks about culture and blah, blah, blah. But we are definitely a team environment. We want to be in a place where people want to, to team together. Our fundamental belief, we have a purpose statement, which is we work together. It's the very first part of our purpose statement is this concept of team and working together. And it creates, there's two fundamental reasons for it. One is we think it creates a more enjoyable work environment when, you, when, you, when you're in a team-based approach. And then second, and, and probably really important, which is when you, when you think about sort of why are we here? We're here to take care of clients. Well, if you work together, you come up with better solutions fundamentally, right? And, and so that's it. The, the second part of our purpose statement is, is that we're here to improve the lives of our clients. And, you know, we consider it, we want to make sure that we're partnering with people who consider it to be an honor. Like these clients open up their, they open up their situation, right? And they don't, things that clients share with us, they don't, they don't share with so many people. Very true. Right? Sometimes, they don't, sometimes they don't even share it with, you know, a couple, they might not be sharing all of it with each other. right? <laughs> and so, you know, they let us in and that's an incredible honor. And so we have to respect that by delivering, you know, advice that helps to improve their life related to their financial situation. And then the last part is we say we're seeking, you know, we're improving the lives of our clients by seeking to provide the best financial advice. We want to make sure that we partner with people who, you know, similar, maybe similar to what I said earlier, like we don't have all the answers, right? We want to, we want to say that right at the beginning, right? Because we want to be a learning environment. You know, as soon as you say, I got this all figured out, that's when the competition kicks your ass. And, mm -hmm. you, you know, that's, that's just not, like, that's not a place we want to be. We want to constantly be a forward-leaning organization, organic growth, client-centric, figuring out how do we continue to get better and better. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think uh, I appreciate that you didn't just say culture, right, that you followed it up with a couple of paragraphs, right, that yeah, are sorry. very, no, 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 I don't mean that. <laughs> I don't mean it that way. Um, you know, that there's substance to it, right? And it, there's consistency, I imagine, in the way that you tell the story. Um, it's very easy to say culture and anybody can and often does, right? So I appreciate yeah. the additional color and context there. I do, I want to talk about organic growth, but before I do, I just want to come back to the M&A cycle, if you will, yeah. to get a sense for your seeing is driving M&A activity now. I look back, you know, to maybe five years ago when things really started to accelerate and a lot of it was driven by a combination of demographics um, and also, you know, pricing, right? Um, yeah. There were obviously very high valuations, more private equity money coming in, more buyers than ever before. Um, so it did create a very good market. As you sit here in February of 2023 and you look at what's driving M&A activity today from the seller's perspective, right? What what do you see are some of the primary motivators? Yeah. I, for, when we hear people say yes to us, right, over somebody else, um, or just yes, they want to do a transaction. I think, I think the key component of it is 
they're looking to, they, they see that the, the, the concept of scale is actually coming to fruition, right? There are things that they can access <clears throat> that they wouldn't otherwise access before. And so I, I think that's the root of actually, if you go all the way back to M&A starting, I mean, in, in some ways you kind of had the focus and NFP models, right? Which were really very much financial transactions and how they were structured. But over time, what you started to see is that some scale in these firms started started to make a difference. And, and you know, not until you get to scale, you know, the you know, benefit of coming together, do you start to see these things take off? I think today more than ever, what I'm hearing from people who are choosing to, to transact is that they are seeing that scale matters. And when they, when it's about us specifically, it's about, you know, these components of what you do are really valuable to me because I either don't do them or I'm not as capable as I'd like to be, or I some someplace that I really want to add um, as I go forward in terms of servicing clients and things like that. So I think, I think it's just this, this, this realization that scale matters within it. Um, I think, the, you know, look, and, and what, what's the, what are the things behind scale, right? The SEC is continuing to, to up, you know, in terms of the, the, the regulatory requirements. I think if you go back 20 years ago and people would have said, what does an SEC audit look like versus a FINRA audit? People would have said, oh, I don't want to do the FINRA audit, right? right. And I, I remember maybe eight years ago, and you know, we're a hybrid. <clears throat> eight years ago, I was talking to somebody and and they said, well, you're, you know, this is, this is a, a RA only. And they said, you know, talking about what did I think about that? And I said, well, I think the question you have to ask is what's the impetus that the SEC has? And I said, I think they're getting going to be, their audits are going to be more like FINRA audits in the future. And do you want to be partnered with somebody who's actually dealt with that kind of level? And, and you clearly see that uh, coming about. And, and I think for good reason, I think it's good for the industry in general. So, so, you know, but that's an example of scale. Right. In terms of the things that they're requiring, just you have to have a certain scale to, to, to deal with that. I think as you think about technology, as you think about investing in organic growth, all of these all these areas really are areas where scale is starting to make a difference. And so I think that's that's the impetus is someone's looking, saying I could do this future on my own or I can partner with somebody that has scale and I can take advantage of that going forward. And, and you know, and, and like I, I think, we you know, we talk a little bit about the typical a lot of firms kind of 250 to 750 million they're sort of at an interesting point as they're thinking about sure. their future growth they're we and i've said this to many firms you know if you're kind of in that 500 million to 750 million your next half a billion is going to be you're, you're not going to make margin on that right because you're going to have to you're going to be spending money on the aspects of scale to support a, a different business. And it's partly the size, but it's also because of the size you're required to do different things. And so you just have to think about, it's like, okay, I'm going to kind of go here. I'm going to kind of double the business, but I, in order to put the right infrastructure in place to support it, I'm going to be spending a lot of money forward, both building, you know, building's part of it. So it might be capital investments, so it might be purely cash flow, and or it's just putting in, you know, going going forward and hiring the right kind of people to have their to go yeah. forward. I'm glad you said that because I think a lot of our listeners being in that zone, right, hopefully feel justified in making certain investments to scale themselves and knowing that to get from 750 to 1.2, 1.5, you might give up some margin. Um, but that's all obviously part of you know growing and growing in a more institutional way. Um, I remember you know, having a conversation with a client that was a $200 million firm that was trying to figure out how to get to 500 million. And it was really very small firm, five people that worked there. 
two founders and they were rainmakers and they were bringing in 10 to $20 million a year in net new business. And you get to a certain point and it doesn't move the needle as much. Right. So we really started talking about how to drive scalable organic growth, which I know you just touched on when you were talking about scale more generally, you know, I'd like to get into that a little bit with you too, especially as a marketer, right? Um, How do you actually help firms that are coming to you, right? That you're acquiring, build not only uh, steady asset flows, but how do you help them build the right framework for thinking about driving scalable, repeatable, intentional growth? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first thing is just what's their time? I mean, how's their time with their current client base, right? Do they have time to take on new clients with it, right? Because if they don't have that, they're not set up for growth Mm -hmm. um, to do that, then, then, you know, you're sort of defeating yourself before it. And I think, when you think about growth, you have to, you know, I always, I kind of think about it. It's like, okay, well, if I, you know, if I'm, a, if I'm at a $500 million firm, I want to become a $3 billion firm, right? That's kind of, you know, what do I have to think about? I probably have to look and act like a $3 billion firm before I get there, right? So I have to be forward, forward thinking in terms of my staffing within that. As we look at firms within that, we, we do a couple things within it. We have a central, central marketing group that, that runs we do, we sort of have three different types of on-ramps for clients. We do our own marketing activity. So we do anything from, from digital to event marketing uh, within that to generate interest. And then we actually have a central group that will actually take that interest and convert it to, a, to an appointment on an advisor's calendar. And we uh, have done that since the very beginning. When I first met the firm, that was their primary, primary growth in that. We also have advi- you know, advisors themselves um, you know, are great at finding referrals, right? And within that, we provide a lot of, we use that same marketing organization. We have, we have about, um, probably about 40, 45 people in our centralized marketing organization to support growth, advisor growth initiatives. And so, you know, we, we work with advisors to help automate sort of how they might be communicating to their existing clients, looking for referrals, client events, et cetera, within that. Um, and then we also work on on referrals, right? So we, um, from sort of COIs. So we, we work with custodian partners. We all create our own sort of referral sources in a, in a systematic way. And we also do that with a separate group. So a lot of the problem that teams have is that most advisor teams is that they're, they're busy servicing their existing clients. And so when we look at it, we say, okay, can we find time by taking some of the workload that you were doing before, the HR, the payroll, all the, all the, the, the kind of non-client but time-consuming activity, can we pull that off of you? And in doing that, can you then have time to then be looking outwards? So that starts, that's kind of that time question to begin with. And then we start to look and say, okay, which of these channels can we use in your market area to start helping creating a flow of activity to you um, and grow from there? And so that's, you know, we think we do, we, we work through the marketing plan by regions and, and drive forward with that. Yeah, I think it's been interesting to see over the last you know, year how many advisors we talk to are really thinking about organic growth in a, in a different way, right? In the absence of market appreciation, where a lot of independent firms doubled or tripled in size without really having to do too much to grow, right, intentionally. Um, you see more people saying, wait, I'm at a certain size, right? And I'm not growing at the same relative rate with the same yeah. relative ease, right? That I used to. So I think, you know, the conversation around sort of scaling organic growth, you know, leveraging, you know, there are a number of marketing tools, resources, talents available today. And I think there's so much to learn. That's the one thing I love about this space is, you know, they're, it's so fragmented, right? Um, and just having the opportunity to connect with a peer and kind of talk about, 
how are you driving referrals? How are you, you know, branding yourself in new markets potentially, yep. um, which you ne weren't necessarily able to do four or five years ago without some of these digital tools and resources. It's a really, it's a really amazing time. Um, and yeah. I, I, I mean, a couple of things I think too are really important. So I, I, I was, you know, as I said, I marketed Wheaties, Cheerios, bunch of other things along the way before I got in the space. I think a couple things about marketing. One is just because it's working today, do not assume it's going to work tomorrow. Like marketing is about constant innovation. So a lot of times I'll get questions from advisors like, well, well, what works or what are you using? And I say, mm -hmm. you know, this is what's working today. But, you right. know, two years ago, it didn't work at all. And I bet two years from now, it won't work at all. Right. It's just these, these things, you know, they, they go through through some you know, periods where they work when they don't work. And so I think you have to have this mindset that says, okay, I've got to be constantly reinventing myself. And when you look to great marketers, you know, just forget outside the financial services area, just get, get further out. Great marketers are innovative, right? They're, they're yep. coming up with new ways to communicate their value proposition to clients. And so you have to, you know, you don't have to necessarily be the greatest marketer in the world, but, but, but don't be static, right? Be thinking about how do I, how do I continue to progress and do this? And then the other thing is, you know, and, and every financial advisor should, should get this is diversify, right? I, I can't tell you how many firms we've met where they had a source and then that source, you know, died or that source just dried yeah. up. And all of a sudden, they just didn't grow anymore. And, you know, I would say, think about it the way you talk to your clients about their assets and how they're, they're diversified in terms of, you know, their, their assets. You have to think about your marketing channel the same way. Diversify for the sake of, um, you know, some things are working and some things aren't and some things just break. And then, you know, diversify because as you grow, right, you said this earlier, right, we get to a couple hundred million dollars. Well, pretty soon, you know, that 20 million a year you're bringing in barely keeps up with the, the net outflows, right? right. So diversify because you have to constantly in, invest in something new because you got to expand, you know, you got to expand the funnel, right? You get to 500 million, you, need, you know, that funnel's got to be, you know, even getting bigger and bigger and bigger if you want to continue to keep your net flows up, up in the higher numbers. Yeah, I appreciate that perspective because for our event in May, Wealth Management Edge, RA Edge, which we're incredibly grateful and appreciative that you're taking time out to join us. You know, we are really creating content that is focused on what we think is, you know, once in a lifetime growth opportunity for advisors, even though it's bear market or bear market territory. You know, I've said it before on this podcast and others, I really do think it's a bull market for financial advice because I think there is an incredible need for financial professional you know, financial advice right now, more so than ever before. Demographics, complexity, you name it. Um, I did want to just end with one final question. You'll be on a panel at RA Edge that is focusing on how some of the top acquirers are identifying and assigning value right now and into the future as well. Um, when you think about valuation, it's always important to understand what your business is worth and what is actually driving valuation. But why do you think it's more important now, perhaps, than ever before to really, truly understand the mechanics of RA evaluation? Yeah, I think... Well, I, look, I, it's always important to understand fundamentally what drives value, right? But I think as you as you look at today, there are more, there is a clear macro driver of consolidation. Now, I, I'm not one of those people that says, oh, it's going to consolidate. And if you're small, you know, and you don't do anything, then good luck. I, I don't believe that, right? I mean, the CPA space is a great example, right? There's huge CPA firms, and then they're, they're still really strong independent. And I think that space will be there. But I think Understanding your value, both from a sort of M&A perspective, also forces you to strategically think about what is your fundamental value to your clients. 
right? And in doing that, either way, if you never sell, you're still going to be a stronger business. Mm -hmm. Today, client, you know, I, I talk about this a lot. Clients today, as an advisor, I do agree with you. Like this, this is a great space and it is, you know, we are lucky to be invited into clients' lives to help them, right? It's a super cool place to be. I think the, the thing I would say is it's also difficult, right? Is that our clients of the future are meeting us in very different places. If you think about the typical advisor, you know, generally their client base is about a four decade sort of age range. If you think about that, the client, and they kind of come around 30s and 40s, the demands of a 30 and 40 year old versus, you know, 70 and 80 year old, incredibly different. Mm-hmm. You have to be thinking about your value added to that, that group in terms of meeting both sides at what they need, kind of a multi-service approach as opposed to before we were always sort of an omni-service, or, excuse me, the uniservice approach. I think you have to be more diversified in thinking about that. And I think that gets to your core value and how you express it to those different age groups. And getting that solidified is helpful if you're an M&A or it's helpful if you're just building your business. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think there are so many different ways to answer that question around value. Um but keeping an anchor on you know what is your the value that you're creating and delivering to your client, right? Always make sure that you have North Star, right? Keeps you focused. And even if you're not a seller, um, it helps you sort of understand you know, the problems you're solving, where you can make investments in your business, and ultimately how to deliver you know, the maximum impact to your client. So Jeff, thank you for that. I appreciate it. Um, I lied when I said I had one final question. I always have to make sure. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have? Oh wow, that's a, you know that that that's a tough one. You know, I think. The, the the one question that I always sort of think is interesting about the space is, is how do you think technology is going to affect it, right? And, and I think that's, you know, every, every firm out there should be focusing in on that, right? Because that's, that's, you know, as you think about if you're selling to a firm, you should really think about what's the platform? What am I joining? What do, do they understand where they are from a technology perspective? So I think um, whether you're selling, you're buying, or if you're, you know, you're just building your business going forward, you know, having a strategic thought about where you're going from your technology footprint is really important. And I'd encourage everyone to, to really kind of get their head around that because it's, it's changing and the acceleration of the changes is going to get faster. Yep. And it's one of the reasons this is our, you know, our, our plug here for our event selfishly, right? Um, running alongside RIA Edge, we run our Wealthstack event because we see the growth of the RIA channel and the innovation that's happening in the wealth tech world as going hand in hand. Um, so whether it's your back office tech platform or some of the more front end technology or digital tool tools that you may be using to acquire more clients to market yourself more effectively, it's an amazing time for uh, a growth oriented fa- financial advisor to really be thinking about how he or she could take their business to the next level. And Jeff, I think your time here today on the R Edge podcast gave you know, any one of, you know, I'd say at least a dozen different ideas on levers that you can pull to drive growth. So thank you so much for stopping by the R Edge podcast. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. And thank you to everybody for tuning in. Just a reminder, the RIA Edge Conference is coming up. Market calendars May 21st through May 24th, taking place at the Diplomat Hotel in Hollywood, Florida. Again, thank you, Jeff, for joining us. We appreciate it. And if you want more content, obviously, log on to our website, wealthmanagement.com slash RIA Edge to learn more about the podcast and the event itself. On behalf of the Wealth Management Team here at Informa, I'm Mark Bruno. Thanks for joining the RIA Edge Podcast. Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. 
In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RAI benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business, and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com.